hello, and welcome to this edition of the podcast from Probe Ministries. I am your host today, Paul Rutherford. I'm research associate with Probe Ministries. We're a worldview and apologetics equipping ministry. We exist to help believers like you think more like Jesus Christ. Think after the mind of Christ, with the mind of Christ. You can always find more resources and more information about us on our website at probe.org. Today, we're going to have a conversation about Jesus. I'm really excited about this conversation. It's going to be about the life of Jesus. There's lots of different ways to talk about Jesus. Jesus is himself a historical figure, a controversial figure, a divisive figure, a loved figure, a hated figure, a very important figure nonetheless. We're going to talk about him today. And my guest today is going to be someone who has much experience, much knowledge about Jesus, the person of Jesus. And it is a colleague of mine, Tom Davis. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining, Tom. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So before we get going and get into it, because we're going to be talking about five things that every believer needs to know about the life of Jesus. But before we get into that, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Let's start with your bio. Why is it you know so much about Jesus? I know Jesus is a passion of yours, and I don't mean it in like the general Christian sense. (laughs) I mean it in the academic sense that you've devoted a lot of time and study to that. Um, And then why don't you tell us about yourself and about your family? So, yeah, the way I came into um, what's called historical Jesus studies by most people, um, although I like to think of it in broader terms as just Jesus studies, but the way I came into that was through the apologetic argument for the historicity of the resurrection. And it started with uh, William Lane Craig and watching some of his debates on the resurrection and I bought uh, Wolfhart Pannenberg's book, Jesus, God, and Man. And I read that book, and so I kind of had a pretty strong sense of the resurrection. Uh, and I developed that when I was working on my bachelor's. Later on, when I was working on my master's, my master's degree is in Christian apologetics from the University of Iowa. And I took a class, a required class for that program, uh, Defense of the Resurrection. Um, So that solidified that argument. But when I was working on my bachelor's from Dallas Baptist University, I started getting pulled into more historical Jesus studies. Uh, Everybody that goes through Dallas Baptist University has to take a New Testament, Introduction to the New Testament survey class. And on that class, they wanted one of the assignments was to write about something that is covered in every book of the New Testament. And that limits your options when when it has to be in every book. I wrote on, my paper was called The Centrality of Christ, um, how Christ was the center of the movement from the Old Testament, intertestament Judaism to early Christianity. And the key person in that was Jesus. So I wrote about that. And okay, then, so I hear you saying yeah. that it's you got into Jesus historical Jesus studies through both your bachelor's degree program and your master's degree program. Yes. Which to review, you went to Dallas Baptist and Biola University. Yes. Is that right? Okay. So your master's from Biola is in Christian apologetics. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Did I get the title right? Yeah. Yeah, and that's a that's a big program. It's a great yeah, program. It Fantastic program. Yeah. Listener, if you're thinking about doing it, personal endorsement. Paul Rutherford endorses it. Loves it. That's great. And you do too, I would hope. You're alumni. Yes, Yes, it's a very good program. (laughs) Yeah, it's great. Uh, That's fantastic. Why don't you tell us one quick thing about your family so we can get to know you personally? 
Yeah, um, man, one quick thing. That's uh, me and my wife met in the context of ministry. So, like, our whole relationship, ministry's been in the background, and it's been something that we have different approaches to, but uh, we both have a passion for. So we are, we're always kind of collaborating together a little bit here and there. Okay, so you're married, and you've been yes. married how long? About seven years. Seven years, great. And you met your wife in a ministry context. Yes. So what I hear you saying is your your marriage, your relationship, you're on staff here with Probe, so you're in ministry yourself. It's very, you have a life that's full of ministry. Yes. That's yes, fantastic. Sounds like you're living the life, bro. <laughs> Trying to. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get to it. We're talking about five things that every believer needs to know about the life of Jesus. So let me start off by making a distinction which is that we're going to be talking about the life of Jesus, the man, Jesus, the person of Jesus. Yes. We're not going to be talking about theology. We're not going to be talking about the offices of the Christ or anything like that. We're going to be talking about the historical, the person of Jesus, the five things that every believer needs to know about the person of Jesus. Okay. So listener, first off, just get that distinction down. And that's going to be helpful for our conversation. The second thing is, why this matters. Why do we need to know about the person of Jesus, Tom? Yeah, this matters. It's a big part of uh, Christian discipleship, used to be. We have four books of the New Testament dedicated to it. And we have the letters kind of assume this knowledge of the life of Jesus when you're reading the epistles in the New Testament. Uh, We find that in Hebrews 1, 1, 1, 2. Uh, long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir to all things and through whom he made the universe. Uh, so God's appointing this to his son who he spoke through. That was Hebrews you were just reading? Yes, Hebrews he- 1, 1, 1 and 2. 1, 1 and 2. Okay, yeah. go ahead. So, um, you know, we come through this and this is pointing to this person who is the key figure in Christianity, the key figure in the biblical narrative. So to skip Jesus, if you're reading through the Bible and to skip Jesus, it would be like if you're watching an action movie and you skip the main, you know, the the main fight scene at the end of the movie. Yeah, got it. You missed the whole point if you miss Jesus. Yeah. yeah, I got it. That makes sense. And uh I would add here, I think Tom, for our listeners benefit, one reason you need to know these five things we're going to talk about in the life of Jesus is to have a comprehensive sense of the life and ministry and the person of Jesus Christ. If you wear his name, if you claim to be a Christian, if you share the gospel, you need to have a sense of confidence that you know what you're talking about. Not that you have to be an expert, you don't have to be a scholar, but there is a sense of comprehensiveness. If you tell someone, hey, I know something about this, then they could ask you some basic and general questions. So even if you only came to Christ last week, and your disciple said, hey, you need to learn how to share the gospel, and you already learned that. Well, then maybe this is step two, after you've yeah. learned what the gospel is. Because then after you share the gospel someone with someone maybe you don't know, then they might come back with, who's this Jesus person anyway? Well, what we're going to talk about today is going to answer that question for you. I'm going to be able to tell you, well, here's five things about his life, and yeah. you're going to get it right, yeah, generally exactly. and comprehensively. Yeah. Okay, so lay it on us, man. Get, give us number one. What's the first thing we need to know about the life of Jesus? Well, the first thing we need to know about the life of Jesus is the virgin conception and birth of Jesus. Uh, We set aside an entire holiday for this as Christians. We've been celebrating this for probably 1,500 years or more. So, in the story is, you know, 
kind of set the historical background real quick in broad strokes. Okay. The Old Testament closes, the temple's destroyed, the people are brought back into the land, but they're still, in a sense, in exile. They've rebuilt a temple, but there's still this sense of being in exile. And then between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament, you have various rulers from Alexander the Great, um, his following generals, after it splits up, fight over the area. Rome comes in and conquers the area. Rome puts oppressive taxes on the people, and the people are awaiting the promised Messiah. And Jesus comes walking into this big context. And the first thing you get is an announcement, first to Mary, then to Joseph, that a Messiah has been born. The angel you know, tells Mary that you, know, you will bear a son. Um, he says he will save his people from their sins. And he also tells Joseph that they will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. So from the very birth, uh, what has been told to, to Joseph and Mary is that your son is going to be God with us. Wow, that's incredible. That, that must have been like a bomb drop yeah, to yeah. an ancient first century, now ancient yeah, yeah. Hebrew, that your son will be God with us. Wow, that's incredible. That's theologically, culturally, religiously significant to those individuals who receive that message. Yes. That's super cool. Okay, so I'm going to add here what a, a comment. So, so then, I, I guess one way of saying the significance of knowing this first thing about Jesus is his birth. Uh, the significance is that it was prophesied. Yes. In advance, and that it was the fulfillment of prophecy. That this and for us looking back, but also for the in the contemporary context for those who were receiving him, his mother and father, Joseph, this was the this was the embodiment of the fulfillment of the promise. This would have been tremendously exciting and and encouraging and, and amazing as an emotional lived experience. Yeah, and it caused great uproar. It caused immediate um, discomfort and chaos. Like, it wasn't widespread, obviously, but first of all, Joseph and Mary, they kind of become outcast because Mary's pregnant, and she's pregnant out of marriage. And just think of what it would be like to you if you run into a woman that's that's pregnant and not married. You're going to, you know think that something happened outside of marriage, you're not going to be like, oh, immaculate conception. You're going to be yeah, like... Yeah, not my first guess. <laughs> not usually. Yeah, you're going to be like, you've been up to something. And so that was people's assumption, and that was very taboo in that culture. So that put Mary as an outcast. And because Joseph didn't put Mary away um, and just kind of canceled their marriage, it put Joseph into outcast. And then you have this, this visit by the Magi, and they're coming in from the east, they're Gentiles. So immediately you have this event that, that's connected to the birth that's bringing Gentiles into the picture. And the Jews aren't even looking for their king. And they show up, you know, hey, we're looking for king of the Jews. And Herod's like, what? King Herod says that. And King Herod's response isn't to be like, oh, great, the Jews are coming in. The priest's response isn't to go, hey, we need to go find him. They look it up. Yeah, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And the Magi go to Bethlehem. The priests ignore it. 
Herod wants to kill him because Herod sees him as a as a threat to the throne. So it caused, you know, it, it was a very volatile thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a very tumultuous situation that was created by this fulfillment of, of Scripture. Great. Yeah. Okay, so Jesus' birth is the first thing we need to know about Jesus' life, right? Yes. So today we're talking about five things every believer needs to know about the life of Jesus, talking with my colleague Tom Davis. Why don't you tell us the second thing every believer should know about the life of Jesus? Yeah, the second thing is uh, Jesus' baptism. Um, you know, Jesus, he's been growing up. We don't get a lot of insight into his childhood years, into his 20s. Um, he's about 30 years old when he gets baptized. His, there's been an announcement by John the Baptist that there's one coming after him, and he's getting a lot of attention Uh, The Jewish officials in Jerusalem are kind of paying attention to this crazy guy out in the woods talking about, you know, someone's coming. Um, So Jesus shows up one day and has John baptize him. Jesus tells John he needs to do it to fulfill all righteousness. Um, You know, so this is something that is meant to show that Jesus, Jesus is pure and Jesus is a righteous person. So he needs to be baptized, so that can be a public statement that he's a righteous person in this particular instance. And so he gets baptized. The interesting thing is when he gets baptized, you have something really weird that happens. Because John had been baptizing all kinds of people, and had just been, you know, they're dunked in the water, however he was doing it. Dunked in the water, and they come up out of the water, and it's, you know, they go on, and the next person comes down, and he dunks that person. Well, Jesus comes in. John dunks him in the water as he's coming up out of the water. It says that the Holy Spirit descends as a dove on Jesus. And it says, there's a voice from heaven. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Um, So this is... Wow, what a moment. Yeah, it's crazy. I don't don't know what I would probably like. If I were there, I'd probably like look around and have to look to the guy next to me like, did you hear that? I thought I heard something. What? Um, Did that just happen? Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that was an incredible experience. Yeah, and and Jesus does this, and then after this, the first thing Jesus does is he goes out into the wilderness. So Jesus gets baptized, he goes out in the wilderness, fast for 40 days, then there's a confrontation with Satan. So Jesus, this kicks off Jesus' ministry, and the first thing Jesus does is go and pick a fight with Satan. Okay, so Jesus' baptism is the first real public declaration that his ministry has begun. Yes. It has had a forerunner in John the Baptist who said that this would happen and this was coming. The experience, as it's recorded in the Gospels, of him being baptized is unique. It's unlike other baptisms John would have performed because of the presence of the Holy Spirit descending as a dove, as you say, and the voice of the Father being heard by all present, that this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Yeah. So it was a different experience. It was a unique baptism. And what I hear you saying, Tom, is that this is a declaration of a seal of Jesus' ministry by God the Father and God the Spirit, all testifying to his ministry, authenticating his ministry and his purpose and what he, who he is, his identity and his purpose and his mission, what he's doing. And it was a, it was a unique thing. So all these things were contributing to the significance of his baptism, which then he, as you kind of tag, quote unquote, tag on to the end there, he goes straight to be tempted, which is, I guess, I guess you're saying that's another kind of validation of his ministry, that he was led into the wilderness to be tempted, was tempted, 
but yet did not sin. He succeeded against his temptation, yet another validation of his life and ministry. Yes, and another way to think of it is he succeeds where Adam fails. That's good. All right, so we're talking about the five things every believer needs to know about the life of Jesus. So the first one was Jesus' birth. The second one, Tom, was Jesus' baptism. Why don't you tell us the third thing we need to know about Jesus' life? Yeah, the third thing is the conflict with the temple, and um, primarily the temple authorities. And this is brought out most in in Holy Week, the last week of Jesus' life. And you have this, this uh, Jesus had been having conflicts with the Pharisees, and later in his ministry with Sadducees, and now it's it's Passover. This is the biggest festival of the year. Uh, Jerusalem's population grows immensely at this time. Everybody's pouring in. He comes in. He's riding on a donkey. He makes a king's entrance into the into there the first day, and he kind of goes in, goes to the temple, looks around the temple. Not much happens on the that first day, and then him and his his disciples and apostles, they were staying outside the city. So they leave the city and they go outside. And the second day he comes in and he sees this tree. It's a fig tree. And he goes to get fruit from it. And there's no fruit on it. So he curses the fig tree. And it gets people's attention because they're like, why is he cursing the fig tree? It's not even, you know, it's not even the time for figs. Like, why is he cursing the fig tree? So he goes in, and he, he goes into the temple. And at this point, this is the point where he clears the temple out, overturns the tables of the moneylenders, says that it's supposed to be a house of prayer, but they've turned it into a den of thieves. That's a real famous story. Yeah. It's a famous scene. Yeah, and it upsets, it upsets the temple authorities who already didn't like him. At that point, they've just had enough. In a sense, doing that, Jesus, his, his, in a sense, signed his own death warrant. Like, he knows he's provoked them, the Jewish authorities. He's challenged them, not just their authority, but the temple that they have authority on. He also predicts the destruction of the temple at this point um, to his apostles during this week. So after, after the scene at the temple, he leaves, they go outside the city, spend the next night, and when they come back in, the fig tree's withered. His cursing of the fig tree is, in a sense, a, a commentary, an enacted parable on what's going on that week. He's, you know, the fig tree has died, and he says any tree that won't produce fruit shall be uprooted and cast out. And so he's, you know, in that sense, he's also connecting that to the temple. Um, and that's that's um, this battle with the temple that Jesus continually provoking people that whole week leading up to his arrest. And, you know, it's it's just big conflict with the temple, with the Jewish authorities okay. that whole week. So what I hear you saying then is this cursing of the fig tree and it becoming barren the day after because of what Jesus had done to it is a criticism of the religious authority at the time. Yes. Of the religious authority of the temple. Yes. Because it's an, as you call it, an enacted parable. Yep. It is a visual demonstration that because they are fruitless, they are worthless. That yes. their religion is vain and dead. Yep. As the New Testament writers would go on to comment. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I've never heard that parallel before. Thank you for mentioning that. 
Okay, so I hear you saying the third thing we need to know about Jesus' life is the, the conflict that he's had with the temple, with yes. the cursing of the fig tree, the conflict with the leaders there, and then the, the purging or the casting out, the cleansing of the temple. Jesus' relationship with the current or his contemporary religious leaders, leaders yes. in, the, in the temple. Okay, great. What is the fourth thing we need to know about the life of Jesus? Um, Jesus' death and resurrection. Biggie. Yeah. And yeah, you got to talk about them together uh, because... You know, they fit together. He can't resurrect if he hasn't died. So, and this is also, the death and resurrection is kind of the final act of that conflict between Jesus and the temple, the Jewish authorities. So you're going to get a conclusion to that. Because what we've talked about just now, as far as the conflict with the temple, it kind of leaves it open. So the authorities go and arrest him. They they hold a sham trial with the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin condemns him. They take him to Herod because they want to execute him, but they can't. If they execute him without Roman authority, they're going to be in a lot of trouble. So they go to Herod and they cook up this thing that Jesus is saying. They can't go to Herod and say he's committed blasphemy because Herod's not going to care about a Jew blaspheming a Jewish religion. He's like, that's not my business. But if they say that Jesus, he said that he's a king and he's causing an insurrection, now Herod has to deal with him because if he doesn't and that word gets back to Caesar, then Herod's head could be on the line. So Herod ends up, you know, he doesn't want to, but his hand is forced. He's outmaneuvered politically by the Jews. He winds up going along with it. Jesus is executed um, and he's executed as a person that tried to make himself a king. He's executed as a rebel. So he puts that on the sign, King of the Jews. An interesting thing is, um, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when Jesus dies, it says that the veil was torn from top to bottom. And the interesting thing about this, this veil, when you went into the temple, you had... Um, um, certain areas, an outer gate, an inner gate, at the very center of the temple, you had the holiest of holies. The high priest could only go into the holiest of holies once a year, and going into the holiest of holies was going to the presence of God. Like the holiest of holies and the temple and the Jewish mindset of that time, that's where heaven and earth meet. And so they're going into the holiest of holies. They do that once a year, and the temple is there uh, the curtain is there to protect people outside of the holiest of holies. When the high priest goes in, he has a rope tied around him in case God strikes him dead, they can pull him out. Wow. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, we don't take things that seriously these days here. No, um, we no, we don't. So when he dies, that veil... When on Jesus its, died on the cross. Yeah, when Jesus dies on the cross, that veil rips in two. So it's destroying the power of the temple. It's that ripping in two is God's rejection of the temple and the temple authorities. And he's saying, this thing is over. We're, you know, it's like moving on to something new now. And if, as you say, this is the place where heaven and earth meet, then for that veil to be torn would be to remove the separation between heaven and earth. Yes. Heaven and earth have now met. Yes. In the person of Jesus Christ, because he's died on the cross. And the theological significance here is that sin has been atoned for because sin is the dividing line between man and God. Yes. Right. It's sin yep. that, that prevents man 
from being with God. Yes. It's sin that originally separated man from God in the Garden of Eden, in the in the fall, Genesis 3. And so that's part of the significance here, right? The theological significance, the significance for our listener in, in terms of why they need to know about the death of Jesus, because this is what atones for their sin. This is what makes you right before God. And these are some interesting things about what happened in Jesus' life at his death in particular. Um, yeah, okay. this, this atones for sin. Um, sin is now taken care of. The problem of sin is solved. It's atoned for. The sacrifice has been given. God's and, just wrath has been satisfied. Yes, God's wrath has been satisfied. But then we still have a question. That question is, how do we know that? We know that because three days later, Jesus is up from the dead. He's walking around again. You know, he's walking around again, which shows that gives us visual evidence of Jesus's atonement for sin and Jesus's defeat of death and evil. You know, when we see this, uh, talks about this in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, where it says, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Where Paul's kind of taunting death in his discussion of the meaning of the resurrection. Yeah, this is probably the most famous thing about Jesus. Yeah. If anyone knows anything about Jesus, it's that he died, that he resurrected. Yeah, and if we say Jesus died for your sins, but That's we don't phrase. have a resurrection, we go, okay, but how do we how do we know that that atonement counted? We know it counted because he resurrected again and he told us. That's good. The resurrection does a lot of things, yeah. at least two of which are that it testifies to his power over death. It testifies that he is deity, that he is divine, he is God. He has authority and power over life and death itself. And then two, that that gives believers hope for a resurrection. It gives us hope that we can live as he lives because he lives and he can impart that life to us graciously as he chooses to. Yeah. Amazing. Okay, great. So we've been talking today about the five things every believer needs to know about the life of Jesus. Tom, you said the first thing is that he was born. The second was that he was baptized. The third is that he was in conflict with temple authority with religious leaders of the day. The fourth was that he died and was resurrected. So why don't you give us the final one? What's the fifth thing we need to know? The fifth thing is Jesus's ascension into heaven. We find that right at the very beginning of Acts. Jesus ascends into heaven, and you find it in a couple of places where it talks about, you know, where's Jesus now? He ascends into heaven. He is now seated at the right hand of God. To be seated at the right hand of of God is to have the very authority of God. So Jesus steps in. Jesus is now ruler over all of creation. And, you know, it says uh, in Colossians 3.1, it says, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Um, so, yeah, Jesus now rules over all creation. Satan's hold on creation is broken. So we know Satan's still active. We know that we still struggle with sin. So we know that kind of the, the conflict, there's still a conflict going on, but his hold on the world is broken. So he still has power, but he's no longer in control. That's good. Okay, so this is where we get the, the fact that he ascended into heaven. This is where we get the significance of, I have young kids, and so my young kids go to Sunday school and they learn things like, Jesus is alive. Yep. Jesus is alive. My six-year-old daughter, she can get that. My son who's eight, he can get that. 
And yet the significance here is that if he's alive, then why don't I see him? Where is he? I see you. I see my family. I see my friends. They're alive, but I don't see Jesus. Where is he? And so what I hear you saying is the significance here of the ascension is that he's alive and he is well, he's in power and he has authority as God because he is God, but he can't be seen because he has ascended into heaven at the right hand of the father. Yes. That's fantastic. Okay. So we're recapping. What I hear you say is every believer needs to know these five things about Jesus, that he was born, that he was baptized. He had conflict with the religious leaders of the day. He died and was resurrected and that he ascended. Yes. Is that right? Yep. Boom. You got that, listener. Five things. One hand, one point for each finger. The next time you're either testifying to your faith or you're talking to someone that you want to invite to church, now you know the five most important things that you need to know about the life of Jesus, according to Tom Davis, my colleague. He has a degree in this stuff. You should believe him. He knows what he's talking about. (laughs) But seriously, we want you to have confidence that you at least know something, even if you haven't read the whole Bible, even if you haven't read an entire gospel, you know something about the life of Jesus more now than you did a few minutes ago. So Tom, I appreciate you having this conversation with me. I'm, I'm going to be honest. I'm surprised that you picked these five. I'm surprised that you didn't include anything about the teaching of Jesus. You decided to go with a few other things instead of his teachings. The Sermon on the Mount. Probably his most famous sermon. Yeah. The most fa- Jesus, it seems, is famous for his teaching, but you didn't choose to go there. Why did you make that choice? Well, I think in this, I wanted to show not just what he taught, because uh, we do have a lot of things that could do there, there, and you could do a separate podcast on the five things, most important things Jesus taught. But the most important thing about Jesus isn't so much his teaching as it is his person, who he is and what he did. Very interesting. What's most important about Jesus is his person, who he is, not necessarily what he did or what he taught. Yeah. Interesting. And so that's why you chose things like his baptism, conflict with the temple. Yeah. Those two in particular. Yeah. Things that would draw out his identity, who he is. Interesting. Well, you're right. We're, we're out of time for this podcast today. Maybe we'll have to have you back to talk about his most famous teachings or something else on Jesus. So this has been really good. Tom, I know you have a lot to say on Jesus, a lot of words about him. This has been, I think, maybe a good intro just into maybe other Jesus episodes we'll have. So, listener, thank you for listening in. This has been the five most important things you need to know about the life of Jesus. I've been talking with my colleague, Tom Davis, today. If you have questions, please check out our website, probe.org. You can always email us and ask us questions. And you can find out more details, more information. We have tons of other articles and other podcasts and other resources at the website. I highly encourage you to go check that out. Please do rate this podcast, subscribe, please, wherever you're accessing it, give it a good review. We ask for your favor. I've been your host, Paul Rutherford. Tom, thanks for being with me. Yeah, thanks for having me. And we will see you next time. Yeah.